Welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. Dan, are you out there? I am. Howdy. Okay, then Dan and Brian are both accounted for, and we can get down to business here with episode 129 of the podcast. As we always do, we've brought a movie to the table. We've both watched it, and we're ready to talk about it. This time, the film in question was The Court Jester from 1956, Written, produced, and directed by the duo of Melvin Frank and Norman Panama. So, Dan, what'd you know about this one going in? I realized I actually had seen part of this. I thought I had never seen any of it. I didn't realize this was the Get It, Got It Good movie. My brothers had watched it, uh, or my mom had gotten it out of the library or something, when I was a teenager, or maybe a young adult, and I... Didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched like a few minutes of it. And uh, but mainly what I knew about it was that it was a movie that you cherish and have spoken very highly of in a few different contexts. So I was excited to check this one out. Knew it was uh, something of a period or medieval comedy with some touching moments. And I would say, I guess I'm kind of I'm. I'm Jumping out of the gate here. No, you. I mean, that's a good summary. You know, it's a story of courtly intrigue. It's a comedy, sort of a Robin Hood parody, but it does a lot with, like, situational irony, what the different characters are aware of at any given moment. So I guess usually we have a little bit of preamble before we dive right into the movie. So, Dan, how are you doing? I've been really busy, so I'm a little overwhelmed but uh, just in life, that is. But hanging in there and enjoying watching movies when I can get the time to do so. What about you, Brian? Well, you got a birthday coming up, right? We're recording here. It's like eight hours or so before your birthday. That's right. Yeah, that's true. I'm about to hit the big three five. What about you, Brian? I have been playing a lot of the new Zelda game, Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> that's what oh, I've yeah. been up to. I have mapped the sky, I've mapped the ground, and I am about two-thirds of the way to mapping the depths. I've beaten one of the dungeons so far, but it's really been mostly about the side quests. I've got, I think, 14 hearts at the moment. I'm gonna guess that's a lot. Well, rarely do I try to go in and 100%, but with this one, I'm trying to see a lot of the world. So, it's been fun. You know, you get a Zelda game every, like, seven years, so cherish it when it comes. That's right. Okay, what other business have we got? So I wanted to talk a little bit about my background with this film, because it's been in my life for a long time. So this is a favorite of my mom's. You said it was the Get It, Got It Good movie, and I think that is probably the one thing about it that has, like, lived beyond the bounds of the movie. 
Like, people know that line, that exchange. Get it, got it, good. Uh, and if there's anything else, it's the pellet with the poison gag, which we will talk about. But I think my mom first showed this to me when I was, like, five. And I've been watching it ever since. I will say to any listeners, this plot is too complicated for a five-year-old to keep track of and know what's going on. <laughs> Even a 35-year-old had trouble with it from moment to moment. It takes some rewatches. I would say it rewards rewatches. I get a little more out of it each time I watch it. But what I liked when I was a kid, well, I liked the music and I liked the big fight scene at the end. The big kind of surprise fight scene. It's a it's a story of castle infiltration. You know, storming storming the walls, kind of like we saw in the Odyssey. That's about all that it has in common with the Odyssey. Actually, that's not true. There's like mistaken identity stuff going on. Yeah, and there's multiple multiple beautiful women vying for the hapless protagonist. Good point, yeah. But my real intro into the medieval genre came a little before I first saw this movie, which is when I got the... Fisher-Price Great Adventures Castle Playset for Christmas 1994. So one of my earliest memories was one of the best Christmas toys I ever got. And I got to find some excuse to talk Great Adventures. I guess now is the time. But they were these sturdy action figures. And it was like each, each little knight had posable arms and a little weapon that was distinct to that night and came with this castle. So like a sturdy place that it had, um, like the windows would fold out and you could put people up in the, like the alcoves and up on the turrets, there were little catapults. They were like springy plastic. So you press them down and they could launch a little boulder out and a cannon on the front of it that did the same thing. And like, tunnels that you could roll the boulders through it came with a little round table and stuff uh so like the back was open and you could have them inside the castle but then you could also lower the drawbridge and really cool i i can't oversell the great adventures castle and then the great thing is then they had like expansion sets other other things other knights that you could get like there was this siege engine that i got that had the boulders, except they were red like lava. And, like, uh, the knight that came with that had a torch to set off the, like, lava cannon thing. And then each year or so, they would add a new playset, which was like an additional genre. So the next year was the pirate ship, with it, and you could get all the pirates. And then there was a western town, so it was all cowboys and wranglers and things. One year they did Robin Hood specifically, which was kind of a retread of the castle stuff. But, you know, then you had a little Friar Tuck figure. Oh, and then Egypt. They did Egypt. So I was really into those for a while, quite quite a while. And I still have a lot of admiration for the line. You know, it was hard to break anything. It was really well made. All of that to say that I had castles on the brain early. And then this was the, the second bit of the one-two punch here with Court Jester. I'll just throw out there a couple things. One is I had 
the castle and the pirate, which it sounds like were the first two. I didn't have any of the expansion packs, but I'm I'm 100% there with you. They really capture the imagination and the essence of like the genre that it's there. It's like when I still think of pirates, I still think of that one captain who's got the the blue hat and the red jacket and the hook arm, and the big nose and bushy beard. And yeah, we had the castle one too, which it, the thing I liked about it, I mean, yeah, it was kind of cool. And again, how I thought of castles was like that, that set, but it had with like the secret compartments and the dungeons and stuff. It just very much inspired imaginative play and was, was a big hit in my family as well. Exactly. And it came with a pretty good variety just with the base set. Like you had the two enemy Kings and each King had like five guys and so the one army was in black armor and the king had like a horned helmet and then the the good guys were in gold armor yeah good set did you know that they made computer games based off of i think at least two of them i did so i was gonna say maybe if we need to return to it that could be like an april fool's pick or something because they had a lot of animation in the computer games I'm sure there's I'm sure there's like a supercut of watch, you know, a playthrough. Yeah, I think they did the bi- the first 3 at least. I think there was uh Cowboys and Pirates and Knights. I remember being really impressed that I could have my toys but they were like in the computer game. It was pretty cool. So I'm preaching to the choir here. That's good. Yeah. There were also some good coloring books. I love coloring books. For a while, the the trend in coloring books was have, like, captions under the pictures. Certainly there are plenty that don't have that, but I, I've always liked the ones that have, like, some, some dialogue under the pictures. And The Great Adventures had that. That's cool. I didn't... Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if I ever saw those. <laughs> it, but have you ever been gifted or purchased an adult coloring book? I haven't. I've seen them on Amazon. I've heard them talked about as like a sign of the times of millennial regression as like self-therapy. Yeah. But what thoughts do you have on adult coloring books? I've just always found it fascinating for multiple perspectives. One being, why is this such an appealing thing? Because it really did dominate the Amazon charts for a while. It's like you would go and look and... 15 of the 50 best-selling books on all of Amazon would be these independently published adult coloring books. And uh, I also just thought it was like, I thought it would be a cool way to like sell something too. If you that was something that you made, it would be like a fun business to make those, design those, I always thought. Um, and if maybe if you got the right SEO and stuff, you could uh, make thousands and thousands of dollars from your your adult coloring book. But that would be cool. You probably have to be good at drawing. That's true, because you need to have like interesting pictures that you could put as your previews and stuff. People wouldn't just buy any other one. But it, I think some of them were like kind of novelty themed. Like some of them were just kind of zen and color out. But some of them were like, I'm trying to even think like, oh, naughty Disney or something like that, like a Disney parody type stuff. So if you were funny, you could probably pull it off too. (laughs) Speaking of Amazon book charts, did you see that Tom Hanks wrote a book? I did. I really should read it, given that I've seen all of his movies. Yeah, you got to really consume the corpus. And his next one comes out this summer. It is Asteroid City, a Wes Anderson movie. The first time 
Wow, he's in that? I I saw the poster the other day at the Art House Theater, and it was just a wall of names. I didn't even... His didn't jump out at me with all the others. I know, it's pretty crazy how, how stacked that cast is. <laughs> it's... I think we said it last time, but... Anderson, it's like he draws in people and then they all want to be in the next one. So it just gets bigger and bigger. You know, it's not 100% overlap, but a lot of familiar faces. So are we ready to talk shop with this movie? Sure. Okay. In some ways, this harkens back to probably the most famous Robin Hood adaptation, which was Errol Flynn in The Adventures of Robin Hood which it says was 1938. So this borrows some of the same touchstones. Yeah, and it's bright Technicolor uh, cinematography. And for some reason, I thought it was black and white. I don't know why I thought it was black and white. I think maybe like the preview picture it has on Letterboxd is black and white. But it's got some really fun bright colors, which you really see in the costumes, I think. Definitely. Not only does everybody have, like, a distinctive, super colorful costume all the time, there's a lot of costume changes, even for the male lead. Like, scene to scene, he's always wearing something different. And the whole story takes place in, like, just over a day, so they're changing clothes a lot. And, yeah, this is a medieval story. The star is Danny Kaye who you might recognize from White Christmas or a few other things. And he plays a character named Hubert Hawkins. Although as the story goes, he's going to assume a couple different aliases. So Hawkins is a carnival performer and he works for an outlaw named the Black Fox, who is for all intents and purposes, Robin Hood. He lives out mm -hmm. in the woods and he has a band of merry men and they are opposed to the king in power. Just a touch of Zorro, too, I would say. Right. The outfit definitely has has Zorro because he's got a black mask that's kind of like uh, Batman, you know, covers just the eyes and the top of his head. And they live out in the woods. And one thing I'll say here. The first time I ever went to the Renaissance Fair, which was in like freshman year of high school, 2004, I walked in the gate and the very first person that I ran into was the Black Fox. Oh, wow. <laughs> like perfect Black Fox costume. I'm like, oh, my God, that's a deep cut. And you knew you had found your people. Yeah, exactly. Shout out to whoever that guy was. But the Black Fox and his band of merry men dedicate themselves to protecting an infant who is in their possession, who's the true heir to the throne. Because apparently, recently, this other group, this usurper king, masterminded a massacre, killed the whole royal family, except for this baby who was able to be spirited away, and now the rebels have the baby. And the way that you know this baby is the real king is he has a birthmark on his butt called the Purple Pimpernel. It's, it's just a purple flower, but it's on the royal rump, and that's how you know. A lot of comedy out of pulling down a baby's britches and, uh, in humorous circumstances. Mm -hmm. 
Also, purple pimpernel is just fun to say. Pretty much everything they find a way to make it fun to say and silly to say in this movie. Right. There's a lot of fast talk and tongue twisters, which is kind of Danny Kaye's shtick. Is speak quickly. Difficult lyrics quickly. Have you seen any other Danny Kaye movies? So I have up his filmography right now and I'm I'm glancing through it and I have not seen White Christmas. Looks like he was in the older Secret Life of Walter Walter Mitty. Right. That was the other one I was going to say is like a big Danny Kaye vehicle is the the first Walter Mitty movie. But I, I don't think I actually have seen him in anything else. There's also a story about the life of Hans Christian Andersen, where he's the star. The guy who wrote Ugly Duckling and some other fairy tales. But Hawkins is kind of the bard to this group. So his Robin Hood counterpoint would be Alan Adale, the rooster in the Disney animated one. But in, in the stories, that's Robin Hood's bard. Anyway, so he's there to entertain and perform. And he wants a bigger role than that. He wants to be fighting the good fight because the band's ultimate goal is to overthrow this usurper king and put the baby on the throne. And Hawkins gets a chance to have this bigger role when, like, their outlaw camp gets discovered and they have to relocate. And so the fox says, all right, he's got a Maid Marian stand-in whose name is Jean. She actually has a pretty high-ranking position in the troops. They call her captain, so, I mean, she's the one giving orders to all the underlings. And she goes with Hawkins to transport the baby across the countryside, and they, they put on disguises, and they hide the baby in a wagon, and they're off on this mission. So, something that has struck me in recent years, since I did my big retrospective in 2013 and, you know, wrote blog posts about my top 100 favorite movies, I was thinking, well, first off, of those 100, how many had female protagonists? And it was like three or four. It was The Wizard of Oz, Labyrinth, which in some ways is a remake of Wizard of Oz, and it was Bedknobs and Broomsticks, but what I came back to was, I think this one, Court Jester, might be, like, the most feminist film on the whole roster. In, at least in the sense of having powerful female characters. Like, Jean is the one who consistently knows what's going on. Everybody else is confused. Everybody else is bumbling. Jean knows what she's after and is able to consistently pursue it to a successful end. Completely agree. She's a, uh, an excellent character. She's, um, yeah, she, she gets to be kind of funny and sexy and pretty, but also like very proactive. And yeah, the, she takes care of business where other people kind of oaf around. And she's always clever, too. And she can like play different roles. Right. And she's played by Glynis Johns, who you might recognize as the mom in Mary Poppins. Oh, I thought I recognized her. She's pretty eye-poppingly beautiful in this. Mm-hmm. 
And they flatter her with some some excellent gowns. Right. So she gets a lot of costume changes, too. A lot of different colors and many of them. Well, I'll stop. This is about to get this is about to get seedy. There's some decolletage. <laughs> about to get horny on Maine here. Got to be careful. <laughs> and shout out to, to Sean, one of our, our listeners who called me out one time for being horny on Maine. But this movie starts out with a song that like describes what we're going to see. So it's Danny Kaye as the opening credits roll, and he's singing at the screen, basically saying, this is a medieval comedy. You have seen other medieval movies before, and we will retread familiar beats. But delivering this information through witty rhymes. And one of my favorite snatches of this song is, You'll see, as you suspect, maidens fair in silks bedecked. Each tried and true effect for the umpteenth time will resurrect. That's good. Yeah. So this is kind of a musical. I mean, it's got songs throughout. Other than that opening song, it's all more or less diegetic. I mean, Hawkins's character is that he's a bard, so presumably he's really singing. Rarely do others break out into song. Yeah, I suppose if your character is a bard, you can basically hand wave anything as diegetic. Oh, he broke out in a song because that's what he does. He's a bard. Right. There was a few times when it was kind of blurry on that line. But yeah, I would call it a musical for sure. There's not all that many numbers. It's probably like five ish or so. But yeah, mm-hmm. I thought the score, both the numbers and the really the, the instrumental score were, were really nice. I mean, I really noticed there was like a flair of drama to the the orchestral score. Yeah, I agree. So while Gene and Hawkins are driving across the countryside, they narrowly escape. You know, they get interrogated by the guards at one point and they're able to pull off like the Jedi mind trick. They fool them with their disguises. This was one of the funniest bits for me because... I actually wasn't even sure if it was him at first. I I don't know if I missed that they were going to do it, but I was like, I bet it's the same guy. I just didn't quite recognize him, but he's an old man makeup and outfit and he, he plays deaf and and idiotic and it's very funny. Yeah. Like several bits in this movie, you can't just explain. You got to show it to people. And this scene I feel is one of those because it's all about the timing as great comedy is. And so, yeah, he's playing deaf, hard of hearing. And so the guard, you know, has to repeat himself. Everything he says, uh, what, what, what was that? And the guard gets to the point that he's shouting, like frothing at the mouth. And then Danny K, of course, says, no need to shout, sir, I hear very well. And then immediately, what was that? Oh, and, and Jean is playing that she is like Helen Keller. Like she can talk by like pressing her hand into his hand and so then the guard has to wait for whatever message she's trying to convey yeah it's it's very funny we were we were laughing hard watching but they escape and they bed down for the night at this like windmill and there's sparks between hawkins and gene i guess they've got a thing going uh, but she says, you know, we can't be together until the mission is accomplished. Gotta put the baby on the throne. 
And Hawkins is like, well, that could take forever. And she says, or it could happen right now. And this guy walks in just by chance, but by sheer convenience to the same windmill it, because it's raining. So people are seeking refuge. And this guy who's new on the scene is named Giacomo, who is a jester who has just been hired to be the king's new jester at the castle. The Usurper King. He's going to go and, and serve the Usurper King. But he's come in from Italy, so nobody has seen him yet. So nobody knows what Giacomo looks like. And in this exposition that we just got from Jean, while they're lying there in the bed together, which is pretty, you know, probably pretty edgy for the 50s. Like, I don't think you could have this on TV. Yeah, and they got they got some uh, steam, some real good chemistry between them. I always believe in their romance. Mm -hmm. But she's laying out her plan for, you know, if we ever happen to find a way to get intimate access to the king, here's what we would do. And so inside the castle walls somewhere, there's a key that will open a secret passage which will let people get into the castle. And she knows that this key is in there, but they don't have have access to it. Though they do have a contact inside the walls, but he's like a lowly servant who's on the rebel side. And so the mission she lays out is, oh, well, you know, a jester would have access to the king, would be, you know, around him and the other important figures of the court. And so he would be able to make contact with the guy on our side who's already in there. And between the two of them, they could get this key, open the door, and then the Black Fox and his men can storm the castle. And so while Hawkins is basically still processing all of this, she sneaks up with a table leg or something and clonks Giacomo over the head and then says, okay, Hawkins, you're Giacomo now. And Hawkins is going to be very put upon by many people for the whole rest of the movie. Lots of people have a lot of responsibilities. They've got a lot riding on Hawkins and who they think he is. That's right. And one thing I wanted to point out in this scene is... Um... Before we kind of get this exposition dump, there's this uh, really nice little number with Hawkins singing to the baby and basically laying out that he he could have a bright future ahead of him if all goes well. And you shouted this out as one of your favorite movie musical numbers when we did that top five a while ago. That's right, I did. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good song to sing to a baby, like... If I have the opportunity, I will probably sing this song to a baby. Well, this baby is going to be a king. And what's the saying? A cat may look at a king. It's like, for this moment, the the commoner is the caretaker of royalty. But someday the, the king is going to have these big experiences and, you know, treasures and lands to his name but the most meaningful thing may be the, the memories that they share. 
So it is a nice moment and well orchestrated, as you mentioned. Another shout out. The guy who plays Giacomo, the real one, who's in the movie for like a minute, is John Carradine. And did you recognize John Carradine at all? He looked familiar, but I couldn't place what I knew him from. So he's kind of a character actor from back in this period. He's in the Ten Commandments, which would have been this same year. He plays Moses' brother, Aaron. And he also played in several of the later Universal Monster movies. So he played Dracula a couple times after it wasn't Bela Lugosi anymore. And he's got a really distinctive voice. Oh, I think I recognize him as he's the lanky fella from Stagecoach. Okay. Oh, interesting. Is he the, like, the Confederate guy? Okay. The guy who's like a gentleman, but actually he's the asshole. Right. He's got kind of the classic little mustache and a fancy hat. Yeah. Right. That's his whole thing is like a little narrow face and a little narrow mustache. And a deep voice. He's like always very urbane. But now he's out of the picture. Now Hawkins essentially is Giacomo. And I'll probably just call him Giacomo. And he heads off to the castle with his wagon, Giacomo's wagon, to make his appearance at court as the new jester. And what I love about this movie, I think the best thing that is accomplished in this film is the way it layers the irony. We know what each individual character wants, and they're all individually pursuing their goals, but they don't know everything else that's going on. Only we, the viewers, see what all the characters are doing. Right, it's kind of like how I think of the the classic concept of a farce, but... Not quite so much in the way of like, this person saw that and thought they were really that, but just the way that every, you need to keep track of what every single person thinks to like really fully appreciate the kind of layered, nested, yeah, dramatic irony that we have there. Right. And from the moment that Giacomo walks in the door, these misunderstandings start piling up and... One of my favorite songs in the sense that it accomplishes the most and just has a lot of layers to it is the one that he sings when he's arriving at the castle, which is, My heart knows a lovely song. Because that's what he's supposed to do, that whistle. He's been told that that's how the contact inside the walls will recognize him. And so he's he's wheeling through the courtyard of the castle in his wagon and he's looking for his compadre who he has never seen before. So it could be anybody. It's going to be whoever responds to this whistle. He says, Giacomo is my nom de plume. I whistle and hum, but I hum to whom? To whom do I hum? To whom? So he's, he's going around and he's looking for the guy. Right. And, and one thing I want to point out is that we've already talked about a lot of plot, but we're something like 15 minutes into the movie at this point. It's very dense, not just with wordplay, but things happening. And so there was like a thing that I had looked at my phone at 
And that got referenced. And I was like, what is happening here? And I had to rewind because it was all of a literally 30 seconds that, that a, a whole scene with meaningful plot development happens. So it's a very spry comedy. It's really fast. And to quote the song at the beginning of the movie, he says, this brings us to the plot plot. We've got quite a lot. I, I think that's fair. So the guy that Hawkins pegs as his contact is not the right person, as you may have guessed. In fact, the person that he assumes is who he is covertly working with is the advisor to the king, Ravenhurst. He's kind of the worm tongue or the, the Jafar. He's the vizier to the king, and he wants to keep his privileged position as the king's right-hand man. And Ravenhurst is played by Basil Rathbone, who might be best known for a series that he did where he played Sherlock Holmes in several movies. But noteworthy, in the research for this episode, I also learned he played the villain in the Errol Flynn Robin Hood. I was going to point that out because I had noticed that too. Yeah, so this is him kind of returning in the same role almost. It's like it comes full circle. Quite a cast. It is a great cast. It feels like every person is they cast a little above what the role actually needed. You know, they got like a it's like, oh, let's get someone special for this role. But they did that for like every single role. <laughs> That's a really good point. So Ravenhurst has actually been in communication with the real Giacomo, but again, has never seen his face before. But he arranged the hiring of Giacomo because he knows that the real Giacomo is a trained assassin in addition to being an entertainer. And so he has brought Giacomo to the castle with the intent that Giacomo will murder all the other advisors who have the king's ear, leaving Ravenhurst as the only advisor. Bear in mind that Hawkins does not know this. So both sides, you've got misunderstandings. Hawkins thinks Ravenhurst is a rebel. Ravenhurst thinks Hawkins is going to murder his fellow advisors. So already that's complicated, but there's going to be a lot more. Yeah, we're not done yet. <laughs> that would be enough. You could just play out exactly what you just described and fill up an hour and a half. Yeah, that could be the whole movie. But we're like quarter of the way there. Yeah, that's like a third of it, maybe. Because we also meet the king, so-called, the usurper king, who's occupying the throne and he has an adult daughter, a princess. And so he has gotten concerned about these rebels out in the forest who are acting against his authority. And he thinks that what he needs to do is marry the princess off to some powerful knight who will help bulk up his fighting force so that they can quash the rebels. And he has a knight in mind, Sir Griswold from the north, who we don't see tw until like halfway through the movie. But that's the plan that he's brewing, is marry his daughter to Sir Griswold. And 
wouldn't you know it, all the advisors except Ravenhurst are for this plan. Ravenhurst, I guess, doesn't like it because he's worried that then Griswold will have all the clout at court. He'll be married to the princess. He'll have the king's ear on that count. And the princess is Angela Lansbury. Odd to see her so young and playing like a dumb, hot, young woman. Yeah, a bimbo. So Mrs. Potts, less so, more so Mrs. Hot. Ah, good one. But she still kind of has that distinct sort of like uh, round, flat face that just to me, maybe just because I only saw her when she was older, but to me, it looks like an old woman's face. You're right. So I was like trying to process what I was looking at. It was like looking at an AI creation or something. You're not wrong. I mean, Jean is the obvious choice. But there's a lot of like promotional images of this film that play up the love triangle between Hawkins and Jean and the princess. And it's interesting to me because Glynis Johns was the mom in Mary Poppins and then Angela Lansbury was the main character in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And in a lot of ways, Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks are like twin films. And so then to have them both be here in this movie, I think is a little interesting. Oh yeah. Wow. It's got layers <laughs> like Shrek. But the princess is not into Griswold. So she has been told by her, like, lady-in-waiting, who is a witch, and this is important, that she's going to marry for love. She's going to meet a fairy tale romantic who's going to sweep her off her feet, and she's not going to have to marry for affairs of state. And so as the day draws near when it seems like she is going to have to marry to cement some alliance, she threatens the witch. She says, I'm going to have you executed if you don't deliver this fairy tale lover that you promised. So now Hawkins has got to do that, too. So the princess is going to expect Hawkins to be a legendary lover, and the witch is going to deliver on that by hypnotizing him with this magic spell. What'd you think of this witch performance, Dan? I thought it was good. I thought both Danny Kaye and Glynis Johns were had terrific chemistry with everyone else in the cast. And that included the actress who played the witch. And for about half a scene, when she was first hypnotizing him, I was like, wait, is the twist here going to be that they fall in love too. And so now we've got like a quadrangle of romance, <laughs> but it, it doesn't go down that path. That would be interesting because I mean, she's not like a wicked witch in the sense that she's not green and she's not a hag. No, she just dresses in black and she's slightly older, I guess, than the princess is. But yeah, I mean, ladies fair and silks bedecked and she's, Behind Jean, she's the character with the most agency in the movie. Oh, interesting. Like, yeah. It's the two of them who always know what's going on for the most part. Right. And are like manipulating everything around them to try and get their outcome. Right. With the idiot men bumbling through things in the middle. Exactly. Like Ravenhurst is the smartest man and he's always wrong too. So the witch hypnotizes Hawkins 
and she transforms him from this bumbling entertainer into a debonair adventurer. And she says that the way that the spell can be activated and undone is with the snap of a finger. So, except when you get snapped out, you forget anything that transpired while you were snapped in. So we get this, you know, like 20 minute act where he's snapped in and suddenly he's this super powered Casanova. He's like really good at sword fighting and any kind of action star type shtick he would need to perform, he can instantly do. He's, he's great at all of it. And then in this persona, he goes and romances the princess and they make plans to run away together. And then he also meets with Ravenhurst and Ravenhurst delivers his whole plan about how they're going to kill the advisors. And then Hawkins comes back to where he was before, his his quarters or whatever, the room that's been allotted to him. He comes back and somebody snaps their fingers. Either the witch or Jean or somebody snaps their fingers and he forgets everything that just happened. A lot of snapping. You're right. So multiple times in the film to comic effect there's like dialogue scenes where kind of Shakespeare style Giacomo has to hide behind an heiress or uh, some kind of obstacle and he's hidden like in a closet and then characters will enter and they're talking to each other and they'll start like snapping at each other your life isn't worth that and every time we see you know we get a reaction shot from Hawkins switching personas and he'll always you know mug whether he's the like the bumbling guy or the chivalrous guy he always has some exaggerated face and change in like his body posture that he'll make to indicate that he's swapped yeah it's a good bit of physical performance because you can always tell which one he's supposed to be <laughs> but now he's back in his room and suddenly he doesn't remember that he just made plans to run away with the princess or plans to murder three guys. And he's back to thinking, okay, what I have to do is basically work with my contact and get this key. One thing I didn't quite understand is why was the baby around? What Was that just coincidental? They were rescuing the baby? I don't think the baby had to be there for the siege itself. And it was very implausible that this baby would just be chilling out for a day, not not make it too much of a, a distraction. Yeah, it would be very dangerous. But the reason that the baby is there is because Jean had the baby and she said, OK, Hawkins, you take the Giacomo wagon and you go to the castle. I'm going to continue on my way through the countryside and hide the baby, except then the king puts out an order and he says, I want my soldiers to gather up all the fairest wenches in the county and have them appear at the tournament. And so then the soldiers come and they snatch Jean up to be arm candy at the tournament. And that's how the baby ends up at the castle too. Medieval era Tinder for the, the king. <laughs> have you ever tried this tactic, Brian, for... I have not tried this yet. Become a regent and then just abduct 
potential paramours. I feel like that sort of thing is frowned upon these days. I would say it's something like a coin flip that Trump did that while he was in office. <laughs> wenches! Oh, yes, wenches. That's an exchange. Most beautiful. <laughs> Just kiss. Uh, so now Jean is there, and... It's good that Jean is there because, as we've said, she's the one who knows how to get things done. And, like, pretty soon she's got the key. But there are additional steps that need to happen before they can, can finish their plan. But <laughs> uh, it's hard to explain. You really got to see the movie, like, not even just once, but a couple times. But the reaction when she's there at the castle and... All of this stuff has transpired to Hawkins, and he is just perpetually confused because he never knows up from down at a given moment now that everybody has got all these different demands on him. So, like, where everybody comes together is they have this big feast, and the jester gets brought out to perform because that's his job is sing songs for the king at mealtime. But, I mean, there's there's so much. There's so much going on. He's got the baby in a basket because Jean had the baby and then she got, like, shuffled off somewhere. Like, she had to go sit beside the king. And then Hawkins has got the basket and he's trying to figure out what to do with it because, I mean, if the baby gets found, that's game over. But Hawkins does this song where he basically tells the story of comedians are depressed, which we've talked about a little bit. You know, it's the sad clown trope. Yep. You make other people laugh, but on the inside, you got dark doings going on. And that song is called The Maladjusted Jester. Which you can tell just from the title is going to have lots of polysyllabic and alliterative wordplay. When I was a lad, I was gloomy and sad as I was from the day I was born. While others would giggle and wiggle and wriggle, I proudly was loudly forlorn. My friends and my family looked at me clamily, thought there was something amiss. While others found various antics hilarious, all I could manage was this. <laughs> and it's like that rapid fire all through, all throughout. It's, you know, the bravura moment for Danny Kaye's style. And, and yeah, there's all this other commotion going on around, too, because everybody's trying to do something. This is like kind of the capstone scene of the movie where everybody's trying to get something done throughout the scene. And also he's trying to hide the baby. So get everyone's attention on him so that the baby isn't discovered. So it's a really impressive scene. Right. There's always multiple things going on. So he delivers this this song. And then he takes his seat at the feet of the king because they're going to welcome in Sir Griswold, who has just arrived. And Sir Griswold enters and Hawkins is like, he's riffing. He's like singing an improvised song about what's going on in their meeting. And this plan that the king has of, okay, you're going to marry my daughter to build our alliance. But then Angela Lansbury stands up and says, No, father, I love another. A man who even now wears my handkerchief by his heart. And 
<laughs> Giacomo sings this song about the handkerchief. He who holds her heart holds her handkerchief. But also the king keeps kicking him. So he's like, he has to keep starting the song over. So he's like a broken record and he starts getting like the words twisted. So he's doing like spoonerisms. Yeah, lots of wordplay. And he has to keep starting again because the king keeps kicking him. But what it boils down to is... Angela Lansbury says, the man I love is Giacomo. And the buildup to this scene, I was appreciating more than ever this time watching it, because what I didn't notice before was how much Hawkins has forgotten at this point. And so, like, Hawkins is sitting here, and while, like, Griswold is making his entrance, the princess starts, like, playing footsie with him. Like, she's, like, rubbing him with the tip of her, her shoe from her throne. And Hawkins gives her this look like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, who are you and why are you doing that? And <laughs> it's because he has no memory of their whole romance. Right. Of, like, yeah, kisses up the arm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you you gotta see it. That's gonna be my bullet point for this whole review, is watch this movie. But in this, this song, he's like, Light up the oil, this man must boil, this man named Giacomo! Oh, no! <laughs> because he remembers that he's Giacomo. And yeah. they, like, grab him, and the soldiers check his pockets, and he's got the handkerchief, which he didn't even remember that he had. Yeah, he's like, where'd that come from? Oh, God. <laughs> so now he's gonna die. And Griswold steps in, because he's furious that the princess is in love with a commoner. And he says, if you were a knight, I would slay you in mortal combat. So this is another little wrinkle in the, the development. And the king decides, that's a good idea. He says, because if you could challenge Hawkins and kill him in a noble duel, then by our rules, apparently, you would get to marry the princess. You know, it's like Robin Hood rules. Win the tournament, get the hand of the fair lady. And she, I guess, won't have any say. Because that's how it works in, in this day and age. But so Griswold says, okay, that sounds good, but he's not a knight. So how am I going to battle him in the rules of chivalry? And the king decides that they are going to rapid fire rush Hawkins through the stages of becoming a knight. And this is one of my favorite gigs. So there's like quests that you have to fulfill to become a knight and training exercises you have to complete and all of these stages like virtually complete themselves around hawkins i know it's so big so they're gonna rush him through the stages of becoming a knight and the things he has to do are like the candidate must scale a stone wall in full armor and Barely does he have time to even put the armor on before guys, like, hoist him over the wall. They, they pick him up and throw him over the wall. 
And then he's got to, like, wrestle a wild boar, and they basically hand him a piglet. And all of these are, like, 15 seconds long. It's, like, really rapid fire. It actually, it had me thinking of a couple things. It is it is quite funny. The um, one thing it had me thinking of is kind of an obscure connection here, but um, in High School Musical 3, there's the one song of Sharpay, like, imagining her life as a superstar. And she goes and has, like, kind of all of these outrageous things where people defer to her. As the the Broadway star, it's called uh, "I Want It All." I think is the name of the song, and it the same way it bounces through these little mise en scenes, fifteen seconds at a time, that all have like a over the top gag of uh, making the the central character look like more heroic than they actually are. <laughs> yeah, it's like he has to shoot down a hawk, and before he can even load an arrow, somebody else has shot the hawk, and it falls down at his feet. And he keeps complaining. He's like, but I, I didn't. It, it wasn't. And they whisk him off to the next thing. And the, the chief of the guards always says, candidate passes. Is that how knighthood actually worked, by the way? It seems a little outrageous. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much of this is historically accurate. But I think of this bit sometimes if I ever luck into something. The candidate passes. Candidate passes. <laughs> And then <laughs> they get to the, like, night initiation ceremony. And I guess there's a couple others in this class of knights that are getting inducted because they get marched through with all the pomp and ceremony and you get to see how this ritual is supposed to look. Which, of course, also has, like, this chanted poetry that gets delivered. And... I'm tr- going to try to remember some of the bits, but it's like, Deem you him worthy of noble knighthood, yea, verily, yea. Let us beplume him and helmet his brow, yea, verily, yea. Moisten his lips with the vigorous wine. Yay, verily, yea. And they have like a Viking longboat pacemaker a guy drumming a big drum boom 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 and they're chanting to that pace i was thinking of the five thousand fingers of dr t when they have the whole scene where i guess i'm conflating a couple things because they have the elevators is it the elevator song yeah you're exactly right because it's like a combination of the big drum scene and the dungeon chant scene Exactly. But then it comes to be Hawkins's turn and like the the rain is picking up and it might be bad weather for the tournament. And and so the king says, we got to speed this up. <laughs> he gestures to the drummer and the drummer goes, boom, 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 boom. And then they go through the whole rigmarole again. Moisten his lips with a vigorous wine. Yay, verily, yay. Let us plume him and helmet his brow. Yay, verily, yay. And they've got, you know, hands under each of Hawkins's arms and they're dragging him along through what is now a farce. No longer a ceremony. <laughs> they literally, you know, are like hammering the helmet on his head and spraying the wine into his mouth. And it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's good. And it's kind of like elaborate choreography where he's like dodging the guards that are in these lines and stuff. It's It's good. Right. So in the credits, it thanks some marching troop 
So mm. this was always my image of marching band, which then I would go on to do. Dan and I were in marching band together. But this is always what I would picture when we would have to do routines and make forms and things. And Hawkins, you know, doesn't know where to be at any given moment. So he's like changing position. They're all very regimented and he's jumping between different parts of the line. Also, among the various things that happened, those advisors did get killed. And Hawkins was none the wiser. Hawkins didn't do it. Griselda did it because she also wants things to go ahead between Giacomo and the princess. Like, she's not pro-Griswold either. So she she wants to see those advisors out of the way, too. And just by coincidence, I guess, she she poisons the advisors. And then Ravenhurst, of course, is happy about that, still thinks that Hawkins is on his side. And <laughs> Hawkins is continuing to be put upon and confused. Yeah, especially because he's forgotten like half of his time since he's been here. So he has no idea what's going on. He's got great reaction shots to every single blunder every single happening but Giacomo is now Sir Giacomo he's been knighted which brings on another costume change he has got like uh, kind of long johns they're like shiny like golden thermal underwear like maybe it's supposed to be chainmail but it's it's just like shiny metallic fabric um that he's wearing and they're discussing how things are going to go in this tournament that is imminent. But Griselda is pulling the strings again. That's the name of the witch. She has arranged that Hawkins is not going to have to fight Griswold because everybody thinks if they fight, I mean, Griswold is a trained knight. Hawkins is a jester. So there's no way that he's going to be able to win a fight. So what the witch arranges is that she has put a pellet of poison in one of the goblets that they will drink from when they do their honorary toast before their duel. And so we get a whole scene hinging on a tongue twister because she says, it's very simple. All you need to remember is that the vessel with the pestle has the pellet with the poison. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. So you want to drink from the cup that has a picture of a castle on it, not the one that has a picture of a pestle. And and the, the lesson is the vessel with the pestle has the pellet with the poison. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. And what's great about this is Griselda says it a couple times, and Jean is there at this point. Jean and Griselda get it no problem. They, they've got it down, and they say it's so simple. Hawkins does not have it. Hawkins can't remember it. And so he's like pacing around, repeating this to himself. And then it changes. Griselda comes to him and says, actually, they broke the chalice from the palace. Now it's the flagon with the dragon. And the rhyme changes. Just remember that. And so he's pacing around. But when Griselda gave this update, somebody who works for Griswold heard it. And then goes to tell Griswold. And of course, his manservant 
can repeat it perfectly, but Griswold can't remember. So then they're marching towards Mortal Kombat, both Hawkins and Griswold, and they're ch they're chanting, trying to remember this tongue twister and just saying, the plizzle with the fazzle with the pagan in the chisley and, you know, nonsense. They can't get it. This moment was my biggest laugh of the movie because it's funny in itself. It, it's almost like clever. Like, I don't know if you laugh out loud just from hearing them say a tongue twister, but where it really escalates to to hilarity is you have these two guys that are both like sweating, trying to remember what it is. And they're like bumping into each other, like muttering it to themselves and getting it completely wrong and both panicking. It's a very funny moment of like escalation to the chaos. <laughs> it's, it's really well done. Yeah, because another element of this, which is very silly, but adds to the timing of it, is that Hawkins has put on his suit of armor now, which before he put it on, got struck by lightning. And so he is now Magnet Man. And so anything metal sticks to him. And so as they're pacing around the arena, Griswold keeps getting like suctioned, magnetized to Hawkins and having to pull himself away, which of course like interrupts their trains of thought. And then they have to try to tackle the tongue twister again. But they're so, like, consumed trying to deal with this tongue twister that they they can't even decide what cup to pick. And they're, like, wrestling over the cups. And the king says, enough of this foolishness, no toast. And they have to fight. And because of this, like, magnetic deus ex machina, Hawkins manages to win the fight. Griswold's mace like sticks to his shield and he's able to prevail. It's a little silly, but it's fun the way that everything just kind of builds on each other. So it doesn't feel too cheesy just because it's in the spirit of utter nonsense happening everywhere. That's true. Hawkins slash Giacomo has carried the day. He sends Griswold away. And so now, you know, the, the princess thinks she's found her fairy tale lover ravenhurst assumes that he has you know for the most part won the day except then he learns from his underling like his go-between with the real giacomo that this guy who works for ravenhurst has actually seen the real giacomo before and he says um this is not him this is not giacomo so then Ravenhurst has a meeting of the minds of his guys and he's like, well, then who is it? And the determination that he makes, which is actually a pretty good deduction, he says, this must be the Black Fox. That's who it's got to be. To be able to do all that he's done, he's got to be the Robin Hood guy. And so in an attempt to stay in the king's good graces, Ravenhurst basically outs hawkins as the fox so uh, one or two other things before we get to the big climax uh that are important to know you may find yourself wondering well if ravenhurst wasn't the contact inside the castle who was the contact and the answer is it was this low totem pole guy named fergus the ostler 
And an ostler is somebody who, like, takes care of the horses. Fergus is a good name. Sounds like a name that'd be in recess or something. <laughs> yeah, Fergus the ostler. That's very fun to say. And Fergus is always kind of on the periphery, kind of trying to correct Hawkins's mistake, but always being dismissed because he's like a nobody, even though he's important to the, the plot. This guy also made me laugh because he was... <laughs> He would be like trying to explain some fatal flaw, some fatal misunderstanding, and he would just be brushed away. Like, no, shut up, dude. I got this. We're good. And the w- go away. <laughs> and the way that his arc ends is he gets tortured to death off screen, and there's like a half sentence mentioned that this happened. Oh man, I even missed that. Wow, that's brutal. Fergus got tortured. <laughs> it's something up for yes. But before he did, he had time to send a pigeon outside the walls because Gene, of course, Gene, who gets everything done, managed to get the key to Fergus and Fergus sends the key outside the walls on a pigeon before he gets tortured to death. Uh, And so this key has made its way outside the castle walls to the Black Fox and the Black Fox has opened the secret door. But the secret passageway has collapsed and the opening is not big enough for a typically sized adult man. It's no bigger than a child. Something we haven't introduced yet is that the first musical number in the film proper is Hawkins performing for the Merry Man at the beginning. And he has this team of carnival acrobats who he's worked with, who are all people of diminutive stature. So the, the credits call the midgets. They may have different types of dwarfism, but they're all very small. And, you know, that plays into their, their tumbling act. They're all acrobats and they flip and, you know, they do the gag of stacking on shoulders under a coat. But... These are guys that Hawkins knows. And at the start, the Black Fox turns them away. Too many mouths to feed. But now he thinks, huh, this is a small passageway. Yeah, I like how uh, they're not the butt of the jokes. They're very competent. They're, they're always, it's never like they're bumbling around because they're dumb little midgets. You know, they, they have they're more impressive than many of the other people around them. Right, they're also very capable. And so what it all builds to is that at the moment that Ravenhurst says, Sir Giacomo is not who he claims to be. He is really the Black Fox. All the midgets descend from the ceiling because they've like climbed the parapets inside the castle, having come up through this secret tunnel. And they just start attacking everybody suddenly it goes from zero to 60 immediately and everybody is engaged in a battle everybody's fighting everybody gene is able to get the baby away and all the all the midgets are battling but then also gene opens the drawbridge which lets in the fox and all the standard size rebel fighters I really like this sequence. I've always really liked it. And 
part of what the tumblers do is they make like a staircase out of their bodies and they start passing along all the defeated soldiers up this human staircase and then throwing them over the wall of the castle using this little rinky-dink catapult that's up there. Yeah, it's like a, they make a conveyor belt with their feet. It's kind of funny to watch. And these catapults, I, w- I would think of real catapults as being like bigger than this and, and needing a little more to work. But what I always thought was cool is that these little tiny catapults that they load the guys into and flip them over the wall are like identical to what the catapults look like on the Great Adventures castle. Oh, great connection. So it's there synergy. You go. Yeah. And Hawkins dons his swashbuckler persona one more time. The witch, you know, comes around a corner and snaps her fingers so that he can have this big sword fight with Ravenhurst. And it ends with him backing Ravenhurst into a corner and he like falls onto this human conveyor belt and ends up over the wall, too. I was definitely thinking of Zoro when he was doing his sword fighting there, his swashbuckling. Oh, totally. There's like a funny bit where he slices a candle and it looks like he didn't cut it. And then he, you know, blows and it's like the anime slides apart humorously a moment later. I will say when I was five, by this point, I was confused whether or not Hawkins was actually the Black Fox. I was like, okay, because the first song that he sings, he's wearing the Black Fox's outfit and he's singing Uh... about being the Black Fox. And then at the end of the song, the real Black Fox shows up and he's like, get out of my clothes, Hawkins. Right. But yeah, that confused me a little bit at first. But too. then it comes yeah. back around and Ravenhurst is like, he's the Black Fox. And Hawkins even says, yeah. yes, I am. I am the Black Fox. So when I was a kindergartner and had learned to, you know, trust what you're told, I'm like, well, okay, well, is he? (laughs) And the verdict is no, he isn't. But, I mean, he accomplishes more than the real Black Fox ever did. Yeah, that's what I kind of liked about the revelation, the false revelation that he was the Black Fox, is that he, but really more so Gene, actually did like what you would expect the heroic guy to do. So they sort of were, in some ways, the equivalent of the Black Fox. Right. Kind of the moral of the whole story is, like, don't underestimate people. Right. Like, people can do more than you give them credit for. And the tide threatens to turn when Griswold storms back to the castle with his men, having heard about the uprising. And he's there ostensibly to serve the king, so... You know, he says, stand down. But then Hawkins brings the baby out and shows the Pimpernel to Griswold. Flashes the baby butt. Right. And Griswold bows to the real king, the baby. And this gives the usurper no choice but to bow down to. And I actually have a couple thoughts about this ending. Which, I mean, it's a good ending, and it works well, and it kind of ties things together really well, because at the beginning, Hawkins was kind of embarrassed to be showing the baby butt. He's like, why is this? Why am I the one who has to do this? Uh, But then it's like the big final piece of the keystone is, is show the baby, and the army stands down. 
the glorious reveal is is pulling down a baby's diaper. Right. But okay, two things. One is I mean Griswold there's no guarantee that he would bow down. You know, he's got this alliance with uh, Roderick, I guess, is the name of the the guy who's been claiming to be king. Like, you don't know that he's going to bow down. I think the reason that one works is because we've already seen that he is very married to the concept of you must do things the honorable way and the proper way because of the thing where he wouldn't kill Humphrey. What's his name? Hawkins. He wouldn't kill Hawkins unless he was a knight. Right. Yeah, he's very principled and he's not a scoundrel. He's like a decent guy. But then also Roderick gets to just step down to say, oh, yeah, my bad. He murdered the whole royal family. Yeah, that I was thinking, too. It's like, okay, arrest this guy. Yeah, He should be tossed into the catapult, too. It's not like he should be an advisor now. Yeah, he something needs to be done about this guy. He can't just fade into the background. But Hawkins puts the baby on the throne and he's together with Jean. And for the only moment in the movie, everybody joins in on the song and they all do like a little reprise of the, the prologue song, which is called Life Could Not Better Be. That's their happy ending. And so that's The Court Jester from 1956. As best we can sum it up, uh, there's... So many things going on and all done pretty well, I think. Like nothing is super extraneous except arguably maybe some of the songs. But overall, I mean, I I like the music. Uh, What are some thoughts in your head, Dan? I was really impressed with the screenplay and really the just the plotting within the screenplay, the the way that it kind of constructed all these threads and had them fairly elegantly tied together and resolve and um, kind of build to this wacky climax of a bunch of small people flying in and becoming a human conveyor belt and launching the bad guys off a castle wall. It kind of felt like it thematically fit, even though much of the story was just this, this very um, backstab and misunderstanding heavy story with all these layers to it. Um, I thought it was a good balance and, and a very clever film. I agree with all of that. There's a lot of layers, but it stays relatively graceful. It's like a, a nimble film. It's it's an act, you know, a, an acrobat act that they keep a lot of plates spinning all at once and you marvel that they pulled it all off. And I definitely want to watch it again, because now that I I kind of have a better understanding of the story itself, I feel like it'll be even more satisfying to see it kind of all unfold and piece together, especially with some of the foreshadowing and stuff we get in there. Yes, I would say it definitely rewards rewatches. And actually, I was watching it this week for the first time in a while and thinking, you know, I've only got this on DVD. Like, it didn't look very good on my big screen. And I was thinking, I got to get the Blu-ray of this. And so I did. And and that just came. So maybe I'll watch it again. Yeah, I heard there was a a nice Blu-ray release. I was reading up on it in the past year or two. Did you get the newest one? I'm not sure. I got to see what's on there. I literally haven't unwrapped it yet. It just came in the mail. Gotcha. But I want to see those colors. 
because yeah everybody's got colors like in the scenes where it's ravenhurst and the ad- other advisors ravenhurst has this like black and purple tabard and the other advisors one's got like a green and one's blue and one's yellow and then hawkins and gene of course every scene they're they're wearing something new like hawkins has the costume that he wears when he's performing and then when he's getting ready for the joust he's got one outfit and then he's got the suit of armor and then later on when he does the swashbuckling he's got a different outfit so they kept the wardrobe department busy and yeah again just praise for the ensemble cast it's a pretty big cast but a lot of distinct characters like you you know from moment to moment what people want and what they're trying to accomplish like this is a really good lesson in screenwriting i would say Mm. just you know be consistent about the goals that your characters are pursuing interesting to see young angela lansbury uh have you ever seen the old picture of dorian gray movie no that i think was her first film she was like 18 or 19 okay and that's a pretty good one she gets screwed over by dorian gray like i I felt really bad for her in that movie but she's super young um r.i.p angela lansbury just passed this year yeah she was really old wasn't she yeah well in her 90s yep I, i think let's check 96 so yes i think that counts as very old I think of her in the later years as, like, the Grand Duchess that she played in Anastasia. Mm, okay. She, uh, she just always kind of had a regal personage. Yeah, I agree. Like, she belongs at a castle. Whether she's, you know, the the royalty herself or the singing teapot. Or a uh, person baking human pies. Yes. <laughs> in the original run of Sweeney Todd. Yeah, the the stage show of Sweeney Todd, which apparently, like, that role was written with her in mind to play it, which is pretty interesting. Man, maybe we got to watch Sweeney Todd next. You know what? I, I feel like I've spoken my piece about Sweeney Todd, but I will probably go watch Sweeney Todd again. Uh, but I definitely, of my 100 film favorites, this is one I felt was worth sharing. I thought you might get something out of it. Yeah. And, I mean, I just think it's it's well put together. For sure. As far as any uh, things that might detract, your mileage with the songs might vary. I think they're good. I always find myself humming them. They're not like show-stopping Broadway numbers. They're a little more... They're a little more rinky-dink, like, novelty song recordings, which is, uh, again, in keeping with Kay's shtick. Uh, But they're memorable. The only other thing that I will say against this movie is that the pellet with the poison bit, which is one of the movie's most iconic gags, is ripped off of an earlier Paramount film. It didn't originate here. Wow. So there's a 1939 film called Never Say Die starring Bob Hope, which has this scene beat for beat, except they're having a duel with pistols. It's like more modern times. I haven't seen the whole movie, so I don't know if it's like Western era or or even more recent than that. But they've got guns and they're like, 
the pistol with the bullet has an etching on the handle. And the the one that doesn't, something, something, something. And so they've got to know which gun to grab at this duel. Because they're doing, like, you know, pistols at dawn like Hamilton. Okay, yeah. They're both, you know, the other, the adversary gets wind of it. And so they're both pacing around the arena trying to remember the tongue twister and it's like shot and edited and acted exactly the same so that detracts from it slightly although it's interesting to know it now yeah i feel like that's okay you know comedy there's there's only how many basic formats of joke in the world you know i guess maybe if it's a straight up ripoff that's a little bit different but i don't usually hold it against things for doing for for borrowing a joke here or there good point and for what it's worth, back in the day, there was no home video. So <laughs> a movie from 20 years before, probably nobody has seen. So yeah, you're probably in the clear. Man, that was probably like the way to do it is like, I need some clever idea or gag. Let's go hit the old archives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing that only you have access to is like, go to the, yeah, watch the studio's past films. Right. So Dan, are you ready to say whether or not the court jester is good? Let's do it. So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale ranging from Very Not Good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward a Good, an eight out of eight. So I guess I will go first. Is The Court Jester good? And I really like this one for all the reasons we talked about. Very clever, very funny, very, very well done and, and good to watch. I'm kind of right on the line of a six and a seven. I'm going to go ahead and give this the seven out of eight on our is a good scale and exceptionally good. I just think it's a terrifically constructed comedy. I, it could have used maybe a little more heart and uh, it's a little silly from time to time, but it's just extremely satisfying to watch and just enduringly charming. So yeah, just on this, this side of the, the exceptionally good, I can see why it was formative on you and why it's one that has endured through time that people revisit and they're like, Oh man, this movie's great. And it, it's just always a hit. You know, it's, it's timeless, even though it's almost 70 years old now. It still plays as fresh because it's just so witty and and moves so quickly in the in the story and the wordplay and the, the likable characters and energetic performances. So I think this is, is a really high specimen of this kind of comedy, which is just full of misunderstandings and, and double crossings and all sorts of stuff like that. It, it's it's a hoot. What about you, Brian? Is the court jester good? It's definitely good. Obviously, I've talked this one up. I've been talking it up all episode. I'm actually right on the line between a 7 and our Masterpiece rating 8 out of 8 toward a good. It's a little inconsistent at moments because I almost feel like we got kind of like a song quota or something. It's like, we need a song here, so we'll have a song. So back in my LimeWire days, I looked up court jester songs and I found like a record album from presumably back when the movie came out and it has like extended versions of all the songs. And I almost wonder if there is a draft of this movie where the musical numbers go on longer and there's more of them. And I think that would have been a mistake. I I think we get a good balance here. The other thing is... Yeah, there are moments where it gets a little cartoonier, 
than other times. Like Hawkins gets his helmet knocked off and somehow he's been able to turtle his head down into his breastplate. Like cartoonishly, suddenly his torso is one and a half times as long as it should be and he's able to do that. So that was very Looney Tunes. And like, whereas a lot of the humor is super highbrow, intricate, layered misunderstanding, courtly in the sense of royal courtroom drama. And sometimes those things don't always mesh 100%. But overall, I think I will edge just into the masterpiece territory. Eight out of eight. Because the characters are so strong especially gene gene gets shit done but overall i mean ravenhurst is entertaining because he's he's always a step ahead of almost everybody until he's suddenly not and seeing hawkins bumble through everything what he's aware of at any given moment it's always clever just really masterful use of dramatic irony and that's the court jester there you go so I'm glad I could share it. Yeah, thank you for doing so. It was a fun one. So, Dan, birthday boy here, almost as we record. Uh, what have you planned next for our show? So it's kind of funny. My birthday is tomorrow as of the recording of this. Um, obviously, people won't hear this until a bit after my birthday. But I have a birthday party scheduled a couple weeks after my birthday. So I actually rented out a theater and I'm going to talk a little bit about that in upcoming episodes. I'm going to screen a movie and then we're going to talk about it, Brian, but that's the way that it will work out is that is actually three weeks from this week. So what we're going to do is we'll do another me episode. That's not officially my birthday episode, but I'm going to kind of continue the birthday trend and, and choose one that is meaningful to me in a certain way. Then we're going to do one of your episodes and then we'll do my full on birthday episode where I got a couple things planned. So what I'm going to choose for my part two of three birthday episode, because remember last time I picked one, it was kind of uh, somewhat birthday themed as well. This one, I'll kind of talk about why I have feelings towards this film, um, and that is the Danny Boyle film Train Spotting. So have you ever seen Train Spotting, Brian? No. Was this a potential entry in our train month or how prominent are trains? So uh, not very prominent. Uh, it's now been like a decade or more, God, absolutely more than a decade since I've seen it because it was in college and I can no longer just call that a decade ago at this point. But yeah, I saw it, I think in 2007. So it's been a while, but Trains, to my memory, are not very prominent in this. So, yeah, I, I kind of want to see what what uh, you think of this film, um, and then we can kind of talk through why I picked it. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, I've definitely heard the title, but that's all I've heard. So, All right. I'm ready to spot some trains, or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if, what the origin of the title is. It, it could be that trains are there, but to be honest, they're not... They're not the central thing, and they're not like the moments that I think of when I think of this movie. So um, I guess it'll be a surprise for me, too, just how involved trains are. But with that, Brian, I guess I will talk to you. Actually, I'm going to talk to you before next week because you're going to hang out with me on my birthday. 
But I will talk to you on the pod in next week, Brian. And we will talk to you, listeners. Thank you for joining us, as always, here on The Goods. Tune in next time. Bye. Bye.